Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. Uh, really is starting to look and feel like Christmas out there, which is just a wonderful time. And uh, a couple of questions just as we get started, get to know each other a little bit. Um, decorate for Christmas outside or inside? For the sake of argument, we're just going to say both is not an option. All right. So uh, how many outside? Decorate outside? Decorate inside? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Decorate inside. Good. Uh, Mannheim steamroller or pentatonics? Those are the only choices here, okay? Uh, Mannheim steamroller. All right. Pentatonics. Yeah, all right. You're my people. Uh, Decorate in November or December, all right? November? December? All right. Wow, okay. Some of you are like October, and you know what? (laughs) That's just not okay. It's got to stop somewhere. Uh, how about this? How about uh, only presents or presents plus stockings? Okay. Only presents? <laughs> presents plus stockings? Wow. All right. Very nice. Okay. Uh, I do love all the traditions around this time of year. Just last year, we started what we hope will be a new tradition uh, in our family where uh, we go out to the National Forest to get our Christmas tree. Uh, So we're going to do, we did it for the first time last year. We're going to try it again this year. Um, But it was really special. Um, And everyone has like these different traditions they do to celebrate Christmas in different ways. Uh, Some of those are very quirky and strange, but actually it's very fitting for us to celebrate the season. Because at Christmas time, we join with thousands of believers who for 2,000 years have said this season is worth celebrating because something so momentous happened. That 2,000 years ago, God himself stepped into this world and became human in order to save us. Now, as wonderful as Christmas is, it's also strange Because as soon as I say those words, if you're not familiar with the story, and even if you are, it raises questions. Why did God have to become human to save us? Right? Why why couldn't he just do it from heaven? Snap his fingers and be like, world fixed, go. Salvation offered. Why did God have to become human in order to save us? Why not fix it from afar? And this gets at something we're exploring in this series for Christmas this year, that the size of a solution should clue you in as to the size of the problem. Like the fact that at Christmas we celebrate that God himself had to step in to figure out this mess (laughs) means we were in a pretty big mess, us humans. And part of the beauty of Christmas is taking time to appreciate how Deeply, we need God and his salvation through Jesus and to celebrate how great that salvation is. Because again, if you don't understand how great a problem is, you won't appreciate how great a solution is needed. Um, I apologize in advance if this 
makes you a little queasy, but the best illustration I could come up with is uh, our kids. Uh, for those of you who have kids, um, ever woken up in the middle of the night to the sound no one wants to hear, the, the retching noise, okay? Yeah. Um, now, see, but Janelle and I win this contest. You know why? Because our kids have triple bunk beds. Yeah. So a few years ago when we all got the flu, Oh my goodness, triple bunk beds, and when the kid who's sleeping on top gets sick, there's just this waterfall effect that you have to deal with, all right? I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but here's the point, here's the point. When you wake up in the middle of the night to that, there is no way to clean up that mess without getting messy yourself, right? Some messes are just so big, they require you to get into that mess to clean up. And that's like what Christmas is. It's God saying, this is so messy. I have to get messy to clean this up. I have to get into this myself. Christmas reminds us that if the solution was God had to step in and do something, our problem was really big. So again, why did God become human? That's what we're exploring in this series. And the Bible gives multiple reasons, multiple answers to that. And to explore those answers, we're actually going to be looking at some of these big promises that God gave to his people throughout the centuries. Because those give us the idea of why God had to become human to save what was wrong with us. And so today is the first Sunday in this new series of uh, divine promises, these promises from God to step in and to save us. And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 3. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up there. Um, This is one of the first promises or it is the first promise we encounter in Scripture that hints that God is going to step in and bring an end to what is wrong in this world and what we find wrong in each of us. So Genesis chapter 3. Now, to do this right, I probably should read Genesis 1 and 2 because the world did not start a broken, messed up place. It started a really good, beautiful, perfect place that God made. Um, and actually, it's really fascinating when you study all the ways uh, the, the Bible describes Eden. Someone just pointed this out to me recently. I, I never noticed this before. But if you notice that the way it describes Eden is that there's a headwater there, that there's one river in Eden, and then after Eden, it breaks up into these four great rivers. And the person who was pointing this out is saying, the Bible is showing this picture that Eden's on a mountain. That's where rivers start and then break up into other rivers. They eat in this mountain. And the idea is that Eden is supposed to be this meeting place of heaven and earth, right? Where God and humans dwell together in perfect harmony and unity. And that's the picture that Genesis 1 and 2 paints. This beautiful creation, this perfect world, Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with God. And then you get to Genesis 3 because it doesn't last long. It says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Every time I read this, I'm like, what? Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Right? Many of you know the story, right? Did did God say that? No. What did God say? You guys know. Right. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but just not the one, right? And what does the serpent do? It's like, let's not talk about all the things God said yes to. Let's bring your attention to this one thing God said no to. Why would God say no to that? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. And so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And I love how it just like throws out there. Also, Adam was there the whole time. Not saying anything, not, you know, guarding the garden, which is something God actually told him to do. And then what happens next is tragic. The eyes of both of them were opened, and now they know good and evil, and they know that they are guilty of evil. And they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They hide from each other and from the Lord. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman! (laughs) The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. And so the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent! (laughs) The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And what follows next is uh, God doesn't buy this, right? Uh, He actually um, entails and the consequences and curse of this that There's a curse for Adam and for Eve and for the serpent. Now, the serpent comes first, and actually what we're focusing on today. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Now, it's fascinating because the serpent didn't eat the fruit. So what has the serpent done? The serpent has deceived Adam and Eve. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, believe it or not, this is the verse that is our key verse for today. Scholars call this the proto-euangelion, and that's a fancy word that basically means the before the gospel gospel the good news promise that you can find all the way back in Genesis 3. And what's so amazing to me about this is that this is actually a promise that God would send a descendant of Eve to strike the head of the serpent. Do you see that there? He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so even right after Adam and Eve sin and mess up, break God's covenant, even then God is already promising a plan to fix it and make it right. This is, again, called the Proto-Euangelion, the before the gospel gospel. And it's fascinating to read this in light of what we know happens next. If we're familiar with the story of Jesus, a seed of Eve. First of all, that's really weird. See, in the ancient Hebrew conception, I won't get into the birds and the bees too much for the Hebrews, but the way they thought of it is that men have seed. 
and then that seed grows into a baby inside of a woman. That's how they just thought of things. They didn't really think of women as having seed. So this is weird for an ancient Hebrew promise, that there will be a seed of the woman. Huh. A seed of the woman is going to be the one who deals this death blow to the serpent? What's that about? And all of a sudden, this virgin birth of Jesus begins to make more sense. What's being fulfilled there? So it literally says, uh, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That's what it says literally. Between your seed and her seed, he will strike your head. So talking about this seed of the woman will strike your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. So what's also strange about this is that it's like kind of this mutual destruction, right? He will strike you in the head. He will deal this death blow to you, but also you will strike his heel. And... If this snake is venomous, you can expect that that's not going to be well for the seed of Eve who will be struck by the serpent. Mutual destruction. And again, I think this is just a picture of way foreshadowing before the event of the cross where Jesus deals this death blow to the serpent once and for all, but is also given death. So, um, God's promise to Adam and Eve way back in the garden again is that it will not be this way forever. They will not stay cursed forever. A descendant of Eve will come and will break the curse on humanity. And so actually when you read through the Old Testament with this lens on, you realize that actually over and over again, there's kind of this question raised with different figures that come. It's like, could this be the one who will crush the head of the serpent? And over and over again, you find these figures, these heroes of the faith, who succumb to sin and at the temptation of the serpent. And instead of crushing the serpent, are crushed by the serpent and do what Adam and Eve did and what all of us do, which is rebel against God's ways. And so you're, you're looking, you're looking, where is the seed of Eve? Where is the seed of Eve? And you don't find him in the Old Testament. Now, before we go on, uh, this account always raises a lot of questions for people, and it does for me too. It's really weird in some ways, right? Like, why is there a talking snake? <laughs> I've never met one. Um, and especially the fact that this talking snake is tempting Adam and Eve to do evil, right? If God's world is perfect, why is there a tempter there in this perfect world? That doesn't seem very perfect. Why is there a tempter in God's perfect world? And then this one has got me too. That, right? If God said, because you did this serpent, now you will crawl what was the serpent doing before? If part of the serpent's curse is that it, now it will crawl. So these are the questions we're going to be uh, actually exploring today. We're going to do kind of a, a big uh, jump around a little bit, okay? But before we do that, let me see if I have this picture up. No, it comes later. All right. I want you to hold an image in your head, though, to understand what's happening in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve choose to rebel. Uh, here's just a way of picturing what's going on. Uh, imagine uh, like an old tall ship, right? You guys have seen these, the old tall ships? And imagine that the ship owner who paid for this great ship to be built grabs a crew. He says, your job, crew, is to explore the seas and engage in trade. And that's like 
God saying, you, Adam and Eve, right? Here's this beautiful ship. I want you to take it out. I want you to explore the world. I want you to rule over it. Only there's a deceptive first mate on the ship who convinces the captains to instead of just explore the seas, engage in trade, convinces them to become pirates. This is like what's happening here. And not only that, but by somehow in some way where when the, the captain of the ship takes the advice of the first mate, it's like a mutiny takes place. And the first mate becomes the new captain. This is kind of what the biblical picture is painting. That at the moment of rebellion, Adam and Eve actually gave some of their authority to this serpent figure. And now this serpent is the one in charge of the world. That's important for what comes next. But again, who is the serpent? Why are they talking snake in the garden? And um, the Bible does this really fascinating thing where it doesn't directly answer all the questions we have about the spiritual realm. Um, this Satan figure, this serpent, uh, angels and demons and where they come from, it really does not give us tons and tons of just clear information about it. But we do get hints and pictures in various places. And there's a couple of prophecies specifically and what's interesting about both of these are they're actually like Isaiah 14 is a prophecy about Babylon, this nation of Babylon and how it's become so prideful and how that's wrong. And in the midst of this prophecy that Isaiah is giving about Babylon, he basically is making the point that Babylon, your pride is like satanic, that you are guilty of the same sin that the serpent was back in the garden. And it kind of fills in this picture a little bit. So this is what Isaiah says. He says, shining morning star. By the way, in Latin, this is where we get the word Lucifer. Morning star in Latin. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God, which is probably a reference to the angels. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so even though Isaiah is condemning Babylon and its ruler, it kind of gives us this hint of what went wrong with the serpent, who we call the devil or Satan. The same thing happens in the book of Ezekiel, only this time it's the king of Tyre that the prophet Ezekiel is calling out. But again, a similar kind of dynamic happens. So this is what happens. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. It says, Son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald, your mountings and settings were crafted in gold, and you were prepared. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You see how this is coming up again and again? Again, what is Eden? On a mountain. You walked among the fiery stones. From the, days, uh, from the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. And again, now, now it gets a little weird because it's also talking about the king of Tyre, right? And what you're doing, king of Tyre, is like what 
Satan did way back, right? So through the abundance of your trade, king of Tyre, you were filled with violence and you sinned. And then it's kind of back to what happened to Satan. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. And for the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings. So what Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and other passages, but these are the biggest two, uh, they clarify what this serpent figure is. And it looks like when you put all the pieces together that uh, God created not just physical human beings in the beginning, in the growth world, he also created invisible spiritual beings. He created both. He created a physical realm and also this unseen spiritual realm. And just like he gave humans authority over the physical realm, he gave these spiritual beings real authority and free will, choice, in the spiritual realm. And that before the human rebellion happened, there was a spiritual rebellion. That the spiritual being that God created, that people call Lucifer or Satan or the devil, rebelled against God. And out of pride, chose to go his own way. And he is the figure that we find in the garden tempting Adam and Eve. I don't know if you noticed this, but several times they called this figure the guardian cherub. You were a guardian cherub. And this is putting a number of pieces together, but I think this is how they should be put together. That there are cherubim that some prophets see, these crazy looking creatures. And there are also seraphim. And when you look at the various accounts, they look, it looks like these are actually the same creatures. Now, <clears throat> like every week, I struggle with how much to nerd out and give you. <laughs> And I really did this week. So I'm not going to get all the way into this. But seraphim, that word, and cherubim, both of those are not English words. They're Hebrew words. When you read in Hebrew, it's the word seraph or cherub. They don't actually mean anything in English. They're just Hebrew words. And when you look at what the Hebrew word seraphim means, it means venomous snakes. Or actually more technically, fiery snakes. So here's the thing. When a venomous snake bites you, what does it feel like? It's like fire. It burns. And so it's like this word for, for fiery serpents. And so when the Bible describes these weird angelic creatures with wings as seraphim, Hebrew people reading that would have pictured snakes. Maybe in this case, not venomous, perhaps, maybe fiery snakes who are flying with wings. So as strange as this is, I'm pretty convinced that what was, what was this serpent doing before it got cast down to the ground? I don't think it was walking. I think it was flying with its wings. Kind of crazy, isn't it? Uh, if you want more on this, uh, there's a lot of back research to do, um, but I'm happy to walk you through that uh, if questions emerge. But again, what is clear is just that there was a spiritual rebellion. And this spiritual rebel figure instigated a human rebellion. And again, our ancestor's sin handed over some of our God-given authority to the devil. Again, this is like a mutiny on a ship. Where the first mate takes over and becomes the new captain. So what's going on? What is this mess that we're in? Why did God have to become human to save us? Part of the problem in this world is that there is unseen conflict going on 
all the time. That we live in a world actually at war. War that most of the time we can't see or feel or experience, but is nonetheless real. So Janelle and I were uh, going back. We watched old movie, uh, the 1996 film Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise this week. Uh, I love that movie. I don't know if it... Love, hate, never seen, because I'm getting older. Okay, got it. Um, but what I love about it is, uh, and as we were watching it, of course, and I'm thinking through my message, also simultaneously throughout the week, and then we watch this movie. And it's interesting because there's kind of these dynamics at play in the, in the movie, if you've never seen it, where there's this shadowy, mysterious figure that has betrayed the team that the main character is trying to figure out who this is, right? Who is the traitor amongst us? And it's a mystery. And of course, like any good Mission Impossible movie, there's masks that get taken off and unmasked. And I just think that the image of t- like unmasking the villain, this is what the Bible is doing for us. That there is a villain behind and underneath a lot of the evil we experience. And we need to unmask that and see it for what's really going on. Because at the end of the day, if all you think is going on in the world is human evil caused by evil humans, you're missing out on part of the complexity of the problem of this world. And you're going to think that those people are just literally the worst. When, yeah, maybe people do terrible things, but there's something else going on at the same time. There's spiritual evil behind and underneath much of the human evil that we experience. So when you think about Christmas, what do you, experience, what do you think of when you think about Christmas? A lot of us picture right, a manger, a stable, angels singing softly. Oh, right? It's like kind of this, this pastoral scene, shepherds. Let me share with you an image about what Christmas is and looks like that we're given near the end of Scripture. We're going from Genesis to Revelation today. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, now pause. I need to explain some of the symbolism going on here. So John sees this vision. He sees a woman clothed with, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Uh, most Bible interpreters say this is a picture of Israel. This is a picture of the people of God. And the 12 stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So he sees symbolically this woman that represents Israel. And it says, she was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon, right? Dragons are serpents with wings. You see why maybe Revelation, like this is an obvious connection to make or a symbol to use. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven crowns. Now, if you really want to go down that rabbit trail, you can look at the classes Jake and I gave last year on the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm not going to go too far down that rabbit trail right now. But this dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven. This is where the tradition comes from, that Satan took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. It's from this verse. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. 
This is Christmas. That's what it's painting the picture of. She gave birth to a son, right? She gave birth to a son, the seed of Eve. That's what you're getting here. A male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and then, and then it goes on. But this is, this is the biblical picture of what we celebrate at Christmas, and so, yes, it's good to kind of picture it in cozy, fun ways. But also, like, Jesus was born into a war zone. It's the picture it's painting. And it goes on, and it does clarify for us the identity of this dragon, by the way. Um, if you skip down to uh, verse 9. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. So there you go. This is Christmas, guys. And actually, think about some of the songs we sing. Like our, one of our favorite carols is God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Our joy to the world. What did he come to do? Bring healing far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. All the way, not only to the evil that's in our hearts, but also the spiritual evil that tempts us and lies behind so much of human evil. So Jesus was born into a world of war and he came to win the decisive victory. So back to our question on the strangeness of Christmas. Why did God have to become human to save us? Well, one, to fulfill this promise, to be the promised seed of Eve, born of a virgin, right? The seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. He also came to get right what we got wrong, okay? Once more, back to our pirate ship analogy, right? Make sure God gives humans the ship. There's a mutiny, now we're no longer the captains. This deceptive first mate has taken control. And it's like, Jesus comes as a cabin boy and works his way up the ranks and becomes captain. He does it by being perfectly obedient to the Father every step of the way. He gets right what we got wrong. And through doing it right, he basically gets control of this ship back. These verses uh, I want to share with you in Romans chapter 5 contain this really interesting idea that Jesus is a second Adam, a new Adam. Let me just read them to you. It's Romans chapter 5. It says this, So therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, talking about Adam, right? So just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. It's so saying we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. And not only are we descendants of their sin, but we also, through our choices, go the same way as they did. All of us have chosen to rebel against God and his ways at one point in time. And so death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law. Now Paul goes on this like random sidetrack to talk about the law and when that happened. But his whole point is that the law was not given until later. The, the Ten Commandments and all the laws that followed that Moses gave. He's like, 
That came into effect later, but sin and death were already in the world before the law was ever given. So verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned. It's like death is the king. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. I love this. He is a type of the coming one. Adam is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. And here's the key point. If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? It's basically saying that you get to choose what kind of human you want to be. You can be a son of Adam or a son of God. You get to choose. And part of what Jesus came to do is to redo the whole story of humanity and offer us a new way to become human. John says it this way. He says, The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works destroy the works of this serpent once and for all. So what do we do with all of this? Um, I know I kind of went down some rabbit trails, but here's the important point. There is spiritual evil that lies behind the evil you and I experience every day. And Jesus came not just to deal with the evil in our hearts. He did come to deal with that, but also the spiritual evil that lies behind that. So the first Application is to be on guard. The Apostle Peter says it like this. He says, be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. So resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Stay on guard. The fact is we do have a real enemy who lies behind and underneath much of the evil you and I experience. And so we need to be alert to that, awake to that reality. When you experience temptation to not just be like, wow, what's wrong with me? Well, there's something wrong with all of us, but that's not all. And when there's like this crazy amount of strife that we have, not just in the world and wars going on, but even in our homes, Maybe there's something more going on. And we need to be on guard against the serpent. Now, I don't want you to go too far that way, right? What did Adam and Eve do? The moment God was like, hey, who told you you're naked, right? The woman, it's her fault. The serpent, it's his fault. Right? Temptation is real, but we are still responsible for our decisions. Um, temptation is real. It can come from outside of us and within us. But when you choose evil or sin, that is your choice still. 
just like it was still Adam and Eve's choice in the garden to eat the fruit of the tree. God did not let them get away with, it's not my fault. They're still responsible and so are you and I. So I don't say all this to say, it's, God, it's the serpent's fault. And last verse, and this is one I actually Jake pointed out to me uh, when he heard I was preaching on the subject. He's like, hey, are you, are you going to talk about that verse in Romans? I was like, what are you talking about? And this is actually a really cool verse that I have not paid attention to before. Um, Paul finishes this huge letter, really long letter in the first century, and he's done all kinds of complicated theological things, but really he's striving for unity in this church in Rome. And here is how he closes it out. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So did Jesus crush the head of the serpent? Or will God soon do that through the church? I know, you guys know me by now, right? Some of you are like, yes, yes, that's right. Jesus won the decisive victory, but then what is the church? The church is the body of Christ continuing his work in the world. And so through, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we too are to crush the serpent under our feet by standing guard and standing firm, unmasking the evil that's behind and underneath and claiming the victory that is in Jesus and through him. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I think this is for all the church throughout all time. And so not only do we look back to say, thank you, Jesus, for coming as the seed of Eve to do over this human experience that we got wrong and messed up in so many ways, but we also look forward in this season. This is Advent, where we look forward to Jesus' return, his coming. That's what Advent means, when he will soon crush Satan under our feet.